Hi everyone and welcome to Conversations Over Coffee with Dee and Tony. Morning. I'm Tony and Morning. you're Dee. <laughs> Morning Tony. <laughs> Are you smiling? Oh well yeah. What is that all right? <laughs> I know where you're going with that. Yeah, no, I'm scowling at you. You're scowling at and me. And that would be okay for you to be scowling at me? Um, well, I guess it, it would not be okay if I was Grace Tame. No, apparently not. She did do a bit of scowling this week and spoilt. Well, one, one viewpoint is that she spoilt uh, Scott Morrison's photo opportunity because didn't, she didn't look appreciative of him. <laughs> and we know that photo opportunities for Scott Morrison are his they thing. They seem to be his thing, it's, don't it's, they? It's the thing that's going to get him through the election, I think, is... How many photo ops can he take and how many rejections can he take from the people with whom he's having the photo ops? <laughs> yeah. This is the question. Well, maybe he should have thought that through because it would have it would have been obvious that she wasn't happy with him if he had looked at some of her Twitter posts or commentary on the way through because she clearly wasn't impressed by the government's attitude towards women at all, really. No, and I think he gave her a hard... I, th I think that he didn't engage with her in a way that she would have thought was helpful. And uh, I think uh, I think it probably says a lot about Morrison's personality that he just has trouble engaging with anybody unless your name's Jen. <laughs> maybe. Know? Maybe. And maybe it goes to the, that role of what was he expecting from somebody who was Australian of the Year? Was he expecting... A puppet, and somebody not somebody who was so grateful for being uh, put up into that role that they weren't going to be critical of the government, and that they were young and could be influenced easily by someone of his stature and importance and power. I guess maybe, so, but you know, Rosie Clearly Batty, she wasn't. But Rosie Batty didn't didn't sort of acquiesce to the government, did she? Around any of her issues, she was quite forthright. So why wouldn't you expect? Grace Tame to be the same. Yeah, I don't really remember Rosie Batty in that role, to be honest, uh, specifically around criticisms of the of the government. I do know that she has. I've seen a tweet from her warning Grace Tame that everything will be terrific at the beginning, and then everyone will turn on you, or not everybody, but there'll be a number of people who won't like what you say. And who will turn on you? And it seems come to me, you. though, and they'll come after you. It seems to me, on the one hand, there's wide support for Grace Tame in the community, but on the other hand, there are a few people who's I've come not to respect for their opinions anyway, <laughs> who had to have an opinion on Grace Tame. So Peter Van Onselen, who's very famous for being a friend of Christian Porter, supporting Christian Porter, deciding that. Rape at a macro level needs to be dealt with, but when it comes at a micro level, we need to make sure that poor, privileged white men don't lose their careers over allegations. And also that he was the one, as I understand it, who published Kate, the woman who accused Christian Porter of raping her back in 1988. He published her diaries and, you know, suggested that she looked mentally unwell and was hysterical, etc. So he wanted, to, he wanted to out her for the benefit of 
Christian his Porter, mate, I guess. Yeah, his yeah. mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were quite famously friends. So what do you think his issue with Grace Tame is? When I heard him, and he and he was challenged on the project, a program that I don't normally watch, so I only watch. But you watch segments. it when it happens when they Twitter it. Then I you, watch then that watch segment because then I don't have to watch all the ads. <laughs> yeah, we know how it's you feel about ads. Yeah, yeah, it was very conveniently put there, and he was certainly challenged by Amy Ramikus and Carrie Brickmore. Uh, Carrie Brickmore is regularly on the show, and Amy Ramikas is a is a journalist who's just published her own book, as I understand it, about sexual assault, experiencing sexual assault. So he was certainly challenged on his view. His view was that if she couldn't smile and be gracious, Grace Tame shouldn't have gone to the event. Mm. And it seems there seems to be some view. Was it at Kirribilli? Yeah. Isn't it a public? Don't we own? We do. We do. Curability. So she can smile wherever she likes I because think it's <laughs> a public place. But when Scott Morrison was talking, because he was asked about it, and he, he did at least acknowledge that she'd had a difficult life, uh, but he he referred. I think he seemed, it sounded like he was referring it to his his home, which I guess it is on a temporary basis, but it also belongs to the public. That it does. As well. So he went on about he and Jen would welcome with a smile anybody who came to there. But, they, but it means, though, they have to smile back. In return. That there is a condition to come into his places that you have to be continually smiling, smiling. apparently. Yes, yes. You can't Especially have an, for the photo ops. Yeah, yeah. You can't Probably have an not off, when they went You can't inside. have an off day or think that the man's jerk or anything like that or express that in a way which indicates that you don't like him. Or publicly you can't, express that. No, you pub- no. <coughs> no, you can't, apparently. Apparently not. And uh, I, I did a, uh, I did a, a feed on... Uh, Dylan Alcott, can I just say? Yep. Dylan Alcott will probably do well because he seems like a smiley chap. Yes, yes, he seems to be happy with his life, yep. apparently. Anyway. Uh, but he does have a sordid background in terms of his disability. Now he coped with that and wanted to give up on life at one particular point as well. So I think that he and Grace have got some things in common. Mm. <coughs> but it appears that working around disabilities, being an advocate for disabilities, is kind of a little bit different than working around uh, sexual assault, where men normally are the ones that uh, govern and control the agenda mm. or the narrative. But I was going to say that I do have a uh, feed on my my YouTube channel on Grace Tain, and if everybody just goes to Tony Tonkin, um, the Tony Tonkin Show, I'm sure you'll be able to enjoy that particular uh, vlog. No one watches it, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's there, you know. Did you mention Prue Goward? Because she nah. came up during the week. No, I try to avoid her as often I as I can. I remember being very angry with her last year because she had to go up p- people from low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. And, I well, I had repeated goes at her really on Twitter, not that she took any notice. <laughs> I'm sure she sits on her Twitter account just waiting to see what Deirdre Michelle has to say. And this, this, this week I skimmed through an article. So they must have said, hey, controversy going. Can you knock up something really quickly for us? Pro, you got nothing else to do. And she wrote, and I, and I guess the nutshell, in, in a nutshell, she was, she seemed to be having a go at Grace for being an angry woman, as if that was a bad thing. No, because women can't be angry. 
Apparently not. I don't think we are supposed to be angry. No, you can't be angry. You can't be hysterical. No. You know, or if you are angry, you're called hysterical. Y- yes. You know. And I think it's okay for men to be angry. It's okay yes, for men absolutely. to be angry. It's not okay accepted. for them to behave badly, is it? We, we, well, we're making a stand against men acting badly. That is abusing. We seem to make other excuses people. for them acting we badly. We do. We do. So the bar, I reckon, around women and their emotions is far lower than that of men expressing anger, for example. Like mm. a woman can't can't just frown. Apparently, if you're grace tame, you can't just frown at someone you don't like. And and the other thing too is. I did see a clip of that today where she did, soon after that, she just walked out. But we don't know what happened prior to that either. You know, like it's it's not in complete context, I guess. Oh, and it never is, is it? Maybe Scott Morrison said to her, Hi, Grace, I hope you're going to behave yourself today. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Which I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> maybe he did, or maybe he said, You did a, sh- you did a really shitty job. I'm as, glad uh, your term is I'm finished. Glad t- yeah, I'm glad you're out of my hair. We don't, we don't know anything about what. He's. You're right. We just see those little snippets, and that's. And I wonder whether for, but for, it's for Scotty, for Scotty that it's an issue because he doesn't actually choose the Australian of the Year. That's a committee type job, and probably doesn't have any input into it either. Or otherwise, he'd choose his wife. So um, you know, maybe he feels a bit miffed that he didn't get to have control over that as well as what he would have liked, and uh, maybe maybe he was just glad to get rid of her. That's a good so point. he can't come in and do some sort of ministerial or prime ministerial. F- I I'm thinking of the Australian Research Council. So th- who gets funding by the Australian Research Council is decided by the Australian Research Council and then mm. it goes to the relevant education minister. And for the last couple of years, that minister has vetoed some of those grants or put a halt on them. All right. So yep. there, there is a level at which the... the Minister can have a, a yes or no say. So you'll say, so he's got to sign off on them anyway. He's gone a bit further than I don't just know. signing. I don't know the degree to which, but you know, many of our thousands of listeners might, one of them might have an answer to that. I say that jokingly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know whether he does have a final say or whether the committee just makes that decision. I think it would be unfair for, because it needs to be a completely non a sort of a bipartisan approach um, that you would want it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want it to be the flavour of the month, and you know, someone that's going to present policies that are in favour of the government on every possible occasion. You need somebody that does challenge the system, even such if as politicians th- don't like it. Well, such as Grace, and uh, I think the um, you know, Alcott will probably do do the same around disabilities. Well, certainly he's speaking. calling for an increase in NDIS, which, as I understand it, has been whittled Yeah, they've cut it back. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, we'll have to wait and see. But I just want to say, Grace did a fabulous job. She made the Prime Minister look really stupid. And I really object to people trying to make her look like she's a victim again. You know, like they, they, they victimise her for some particular reason, I think. Um, and that one of the things that concerns me, I guess, is that people like Grace um, have been through a hell of a trauma in terms of having their adolescence ripped from them uh, through the sexual abuse. And, you know, and then the commentators go out there just think that they're fair game 
so that they can kind of abuse them again. And that, that concerns me. So then they become the victim of that person's abuse again. Again. And there's no doubt about it, you know, even just those two that I mentioned, and there are lots of others, as I understand it, they're very attacking mm. of of her. So you're right. Yeah, she's being abused again. And why do they think they have, why they have the, right? the right to do that? Because they're the media. Why can't they just let her alone? Because they have a voice, just like we here. So they have to use it. And we have this voice well, right here. There wasn't here. anything else happening on that day. Well, probably, <laughs> well, probably not. It certainly um, did dominate a lot of discussion, I guess. So I think on the on the other hand, um, the uh, the issue of women smiling, you know, is it was often a, a discussion sort of in small, I guess, gender studies or women's studies classes. So it's done not at this wide level in the in the country at a country level of discussion. So. On the other hand, even though that was bad form, I think, on the part of a lot of people, I think it was good to have probably have the discussion because part of that discussion was that men are treated differently. So men are never required to smile. Mm. Women are usually required to smile. Men aren't even required to be pleasant, apparently. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but... So, so it's good to have that sort of discussion and to and to bring that out into the. But the thing that distresses me is that the voices that come out that tend to get the coverage are people like Miranda Devine, you know, like people that are that just I never that I never read or take any notice. Well, of, I know that mean? I know that they're present because they have a Sky News presence and they they make, they make comments about everything. But these these people don't have. Uh, a moral compass at all. They're zero, as far as I can tell, you know, from the media, from what they say. They don't have a moral compass, yet they're there uh, expressing these moral platitudes about people whom they do not know, you know, never probably met personally, but making a comment in order to be able to get some, I don't know, clicks, I guess. People that some... And maybe it was Jennifer Wilson writing for The Independent... Somebody suggested that it's usually people who are very rude themselves. Oh yes, absolutely. It's uh, um, it's what we would call in the profession projection. Right. Tell me more. Well, so they're projecting their own negativity and their own feels feelings of inadequacy by highlighting what they see other persons' inadequacies to be. So you know they they know that they're not pleasant people. So they want to have a look at instances which occur, which indicate other people's unpleasantness. So take the focus off their unpleasantness. Well, it's projection. You know, projection is like enlarging the version. You know, it's like putting it up on a screen. That's how I often see it. Mm. So, you know, it's about making this this issue, which is about me, bigger, but making it about somebody else. So it's it's your issue, but you're making it about somebody else. So they're all really discussing how rude they are. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But they blamed Grace. Or, or they feel inadequate as women and then they have this powerful woman out there who is young, attractive, articulate, uh, getting the sort of attention they would long to have and don't get that attention so they have to criticise them because it's something they're missing, something they want but they're not getting. So mm. they have to put that put out. So it's a form of bullying, you know. You bully oh, it people. Is definitely a form you bully of bullying. people because you feel inadequate yourself. You need to be feel stronger and bigger and more powerful than they are. So you'd find ways to diminish their sense of self 
um, so that you can feel good about yourself. So but if you were to ask those people that we mentioned and many others how they felt when they expressed that view, they're likely to say, oh, I felt great. Well, well what do you mean? Because they felt powerful, they felt in control once they'd expressed No, they that won't view. admit to th- Oh, they, they won't admit, admit to, to that. <laughs> no, it's oh, like, they wouldn't so be honest. Ask a bully to admit that you're a bully. Oh. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, no they don't. They would, they would be offended. People like Miranda Devine would be offended to know that she has all these issues because they they see themselves. There's a narcissistic as, tendency to that. As where they see less. Yeah, yeah, that they're they're perfect. They oh. can make these comments. Like Peter, what's his name? Yes. Um, he. He probably believes that he is a powerful individual who can make these comments about other people and get away with it. And the reality, and to a large is, extent, he can. Oh, and we let him get away with it. That's the problem. We don't confront him and say, you know, mate, you've got quite a few diff- you've got a quite a few issues, personal issues that you yourself are not dealing with. And that's the thing. This but you know what he'll do if you things. do that. If you expose him. What he will do and what he did on an, uh, at least one occasion that I'm aware of, but there may be some more as well, he'll threaten to sue you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, and he'll, that's what he's done. He uses tools at his yes. disposal, which is, you know, if, you're, if you've got the resources, I guess. And they have resources to defend themselves. They have the media uh, and they have Money. financial resources as well and probably friends in the legal fraternity. And maybe he could dip into Christian Porter's legal fund. Or maybe he could start his own crowdfunding. (laughs) You know, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I think these people are flawed individuals. I think every time you criticise somebody without accepting your own flaws, you're indicating how how flawed you actually are, I think. And we need to look at these people as being... See, I look at people like Miranda Devine, Alan Jones, all these other people, you know... Murray and others, um, I see them as flawed individuals, and I kind of there's a part of me that sometimes just feels sad for them. You know, like if this was a person who came to me as a client and was presenting these issues, um, you know, I'd want to find ways to work through those issues with them. I know these people never will, but um, I always think, well, there's something there's something missing in their lives mm. if they think they need to treat other people this way. I mean, you can make comments about people, even the stuff with regard to Grace. You could make comment about it without it being an actual attack. You know, you could be asking questions, for example, you know, why was she like that on that day? Was it just one photo? Was it just a one photo that people saw? Were there other moments where she was smiling? Could Let's you also ask questions about how you might respond? Because would I have the courage in that situation to be honest about how I was feeling? Or would I go along with the social expectation that I be gracious and smile? So you could ask that question too. And, you know, should Grace have had a filter about how she was looking and how she was approaching this, that uh, given that it was a photo op and given what Morrison thinks about photo ops, is it, um, could have I res- chosen to respond differently in that moment? Well, maybe that was her choice. Maybe she chose... Maybe it was considered. Maybe she, she thought, bugger this, I don't like this guy, I'm going I'm to allow myself to express that in whichever form I like. And I think that is fine. In fact, that's to be celebrated because there's an honesty about that that you just don't get elsewhere, I think. So, all of, you know, caps off to, to Grace because she expressed herself. Good on her. And I hope more people do. Yep. One of the... Um, which lends us to a... Another um, 
uh, thing we want to talk about, I guess, which was uh, how people do express emotions and um, whether, whether women uh, express their emotions more than men, you know, and whether they are expressed appropriately or not. What do you think? Well, I think that women have a limited range of emotions that they're allowed to express. So they're allowed to be sad, they're allowed to be happy, but not joyous, <laughs> probably. <laughs> not over the top on anything. Um, probably disappointment. We've already talked about not being angry or enraged or furious. And do women talk about those feelings that's instead of acting on them. Are you talking about expressing well, I'm talking about whether or not physically or just through behaviour or conversationally? Well, conversationally, because I think most people would tend to believe that women talk more about their emotions than men. Absolutely. The way in which I'd hear that framed is that men don't talk about their emotions, therefore the assumption is that women do. Yep, and I've heard people say, well, women do talk more. Women do use more words per minute than men do for some bizarre reason, which I can't quite understand. We talk faster, we do you mean? We talk faster, apparently. Oh, okay. um, but uh, do they talk about feelings? Because I've been wrestling with this idea for What about volume? Time. Volume. I, um, do men talk more? Men, men are louder. Men are louder. If that's what you mean. No, I was thinking quantity. But no, women talk more. We, women talk women also more talk overall. More. So yeah. we talk faster, talk more. Talk more often. But I disagree with that. I think that you know, if you've got a bunch of men in a pub talking about the footy, whatever, they're not silent moments. You know, like when I go and have my cup of coffee with my mates after golf, you know, we talk for an hour nonstop. You know, so I don't necessarily agree with that notion either. Um, but, you know, it lends itself to those notions around women when they get together with other women, they gossip. You know, and so it's about the type of conversations that women have when they're together and it's a put down because those conversations normally are viewed as insignificant whereas when us men have conversations, they have substance, you know. Serious conversations. Serious conversations. Well, Which is the biggest load of crap. <laughs> the biggest load of crap I've ever heard because that's untrue as well. But the idea, I think, is that women talk about uh, their, so it's a myth that women talk about their feelings. They don't. Um, my experience is that people will talk about what they believe, but they use the word feeling instead of believe or think. So they'll say, you know, I believe that if my husband behaved differently, uh, no, I feel that if my husband behaved differently, I w we would not be in the situation we're in now. Whereas what they really mean to say is, I believe or I think that if my husband could behave differently, we'd be in stir. So, so the point and what is what they might be feeling is well, there's no feeling. Regret. No, no, but feeling what they them. might be feeling is regret or sadness that the relationship has ended. Yes, but that's not what they're talking about. That's what. No, they're not. So they don't. But. The idea, the, the concept, I guess, is that if you use the word feeling... Then you're talking about feeling. Yeah, well, in actual fact, you're not. You're talking about what you often... Because you need to say, you know, uh, when somebody does something to me, I feel hurt, I feel resentful, I feel unhappy, I feel sad. Whatever it is that you're feeling needs to follow that word feeling. So what I often get people to do in my groups in the past, I haven't done groups for a long time, 
was to listen to conversations with others and listen to when people say, I feel, and then work out whether following them saying, I feel, whether there is a feeling word or not. And when I did that with my classes, my groups, uh, most people would come back and say, yeah, I have noticed that my partner, if it's a male, when she talks about, says that she feels something, she doesn't talk about actually what she's feeling. It's really about what she's thinking. And I think that we need to... Um, and I think it's a, um, uh, a gap, an incredible gap, in how we choose to communicate with people. Because unless we're telling people exactly how we're feeling and using feeling words to describe that, then we're not really, we're not really presenting the message appropriately. And what's the consequences of that then? Have you got an example for that? Uh, well, when, yeah, the consequence is that, uh, for example, if I say I feel, and it's about the use of words. So you could say, so the other issue, I guess, is that we use words interchangeably. So we'll say I feel sad, I feel frustrated, I feel hurt, right? And when you ask people to highlight the words they normally use, they'll come up with three or four words that they think are their feelings. So uh, if you say, for example, uh, when you said or do that, I feel hurt, and you say that about everything, then hurt kind of the word hurt kind of becomes insignificant. It becomes meaningless because it just refers to everything. But if you come, if you say, you know, when you did such and such, I felt betrayed. Now, betrayal for an individual may have a completely different sets of meanings because. It may not, because it isn't necessarily about referring to the moment. It's about referring to all those other moments in which we felt betrayed. So if over a lifetime you felt, say, unheard, mm. right, and then you're faced with a relationship in which that person is not hearing you, and the impact of not being heard was mean that when you were sexually abused as a child, no one listened to you, and then now as an adult when someone doesn't hear you, it's not just about not being heard in that instant. It's about all the other times you haven't been heard. And so, so when often people will respond around a feeling in ways which seem to be exaggerated, which seems to be out of context with actually how they are, uh, the situation itself. But it isn't out of context because it's about a lifetime of experience about what that feeling has actually meant. And my work with people has often highlighted that one word so the most important thing in counselling is to be able to find that language that best fits with the client and get the client to use that language. And when a client is able to identify exactly how they feel and the connections that makes in the past, that gives greater meaning to that experience. Does that make sense? It makes sense and it, and it resonates with me because I was going to say, if for me, if I suddenly grab hold of the feeling and it has that meaning... But there's also a sense of, re of re relief and release. It's almost like I don't have to hold on to that feeling anymore. It's not holding on to me in some way. Well, it so gives it's the more total... For me, it's more than meaning. Well, uh, yes, it is about... Um, it's, I could try and think, it's, like, it's like lancing a pussy saw. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a great description, <laughs> isn't it? I've used it many times. Lovely analogy. But it's... 
it's um, well, it relates to me. Well, therefore, it's relief, isn't it? Well, it's that's relief right. and it's release. That, it is those two things that, that I just mentioned. When you have that release, it's uh, the other unhelpful analogy is uh, people who cut themselves. That's that's about releasing some sort of pain. So yes. so you don't have to cut yourself in order to release the pain. What you do no, need to do, do is, is find the language. Think about it. Yeah. Find the yeah. language that best fits with the pain. Yeah. would help you do the releasing. What it does mean, though, is that whatever that issue is that has sat in the past that causes you, you now to respond the way you do around not being heard, for example, that those issues then have to be dealt with because you're suddenly bringing all that stuff into the present yes. and it will impact your relationship. Now, other relationships that you have, unless you deal with or at least better understand where that stuff may have sat for you in the past. So if sometimes... Deciding on a word that has great meaning for you will elevate you to a position whereby you can then feel powerful enough to be able to deal with whatever the circumstances were that brought that word up in the first place. So what I hear you saying is that I'm not unusual being a 65-year-old woman who sometimes feels like a three-year-old who gets flung emotionally back into old emotions, I guess, that were prominent at that time. Three comes to mind, but it might be other ages. Well, the well. point is that there's this, there's a child that lurks in all of us that at some point gets triggered by an event or the way someone might speak to them or which results in a feeling that sits way back. And that kid comes out. You know, I think often we see that in often men's behaviour around being violent and abusive that they're either emulating their fathers, which is stuff they've learned from when they were a child, or they're dealing with a whole host of stuff that they've never, ever had to confront uh, up until now. And that's position, power, control, coerciveness, a whole host of things. Things that actually... So often they're having to confront hopelessness, helplessness and powerlessness. And those issues never get addressed because all they're seen in is in this bizarre behaviour which is inflicting pain on other people but never addressing those issues themselves because they've never taken the time to identify what those feelings are. So can we talk about that in relationship to an example this week that I saw a story came up and I was a bit gobsmacked because it was an example of in South Australia of somebody who was convicted of offences around having and viewing child exploitation material. And the way in which the story was written... Oh, Ben Waters. Ben Waters, that's right, the South Australian Labor I know starker. that name because you know. I wrote it down when we talked about this earlier. <laughs> Very yeah. clever. Well, what I was a little bit gobsmacked about was when the story was written, he said... He blamed stress in his job. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that being a labour staffer is a stressful job, long hours, etc., etc., that whole political minefield. But I couldn't see how you could blame stress for appalling behaviour like viewing child exploitation material. So is he going back to some other place? Are you suggesting there's going back to some other place where he felt helpless? I don't get it. Well, I, it I sounded don't, to me so he like used, he was not taking responsibility. No, he made an excuse for being for a creep. 
he made well, he, well that he is, but he made a uh, he's made an excuse for it's like it's like men saying, well, she made me do that, you know, like I just wanted to tell her something and she just kept me at it, at me and at me and at me about it, you know. Um, so she made me punch slap a hole her. in the wall or yeah. slap her or whatever. Well, it's the same pathetic excuse, isn't it? You know, there are it choices that like one makes. You know, you what else could you do if you're really stressed? Go for a run, take some drugs, drink alcohol. Well, clearly, <laughs> clearly you watch child <laughs> pornography, according to this bloke. According to that. So, but he, I guess my point was that even though he'd been caught, convicted, confessed, he still could not take responsibility for his behaviour. Yeah, yeah. And there are lots of men out there who never will take responsibility for their behaviour. Um, I have a client, for example, who continually wants to... I've had plenty of these clients, incidentally, so I won't cite him necessarily. But regardless of what is happening around him, the the mess that's being created and the catastrophe that seems to result from his behaviour, never takes responsibility for it, will always blame the other person. And sometimes you just... It's, it's sad for me because there are sometimes there are men, particularly that I'm working with, I guess, who just do not... There's something about taking responsibility that is about admitting fault. And they're not allowed to do that? And they can't do that. And they can't they just do can't that. Do so it. why can't they admit fault? Because then they have to take because then they have to make changes. So one of the biggest one of the most interesting aspects of working with men, I think, was the the comment they generally make is that if I change some of these behaviours, I am then not being myself. Ah. So it's almost like I have to now reinvent myself. No, you don't. You have to just stop behaving the way that you were behaving that's harming other people. You don't have to become a different you. You can become a better version of who you are. Because many of these people, for example, uh, in many ways, they're still loving and they're caring and they're nurturing. There's a whole lot of good qualities that they might have, right? And it's not about you have to dispense with all those good qualities and somehow invent a total set of new good qualities. You just have to stop doing the bad shit and then become the better version of you because... All the other stuff is still in place, but the bad shit has been dispensed with, you know. And and so there's this concept. I think that um, it's even it's even like I like who I am. I like this controlling, powerful ah. individual because that's what gives me the jollies. And that you know. So if I get rid of that, what's left? You know, because they never acknowledge the good stuff that's in them. Probably partly because. That never gets acknowledged by anybody else because all anybody sees is the negative, abusive crap. But does that also go to ideas of what we now call toxic masculinity of needing to be in control and to dominate yeah. as well rather than just be equal? Yeah, I think that, um, that that sense of equality is a struggle for lots of well, not just men, but women, because women who are um, put down... Absolutely, are, they yeah, don't feel equal don't anyway. Feel equal anyway. No, yeah. I get so that. Got, I get that. So we've got men at one end who want to be powerful and strong and they exhibit that through abusive behaviour and then we've got women who are uh, subjected to a whole lot of abuse and feel lesser than the men. And then when the women choose to kind of exert their own authority around that, They're and of course the men down. push back, well, the yeah. men push back even harder. 
Mm. Um, but there's nothing better in this world than an equal relationship. Mm. There's nothing, you know, it's, it's like saying, wouldn't you love to have a home in which there was harmony, in which there was peace, in which you got on, in which you could talk about ideas, you might disagree, but that's okay to disagree. Wouldn't that be a better environment to have than the one you currently do have? And most people, well not most people, a lot of people will reject that because they believe they have to give up something. They have to give up being right. They have to be give up being superior. And, and, with, and, and I've women got quotes around the yeah, idea yeah, yeah. of superior. People can see that now. <laughs> they can see you. And, and women and women have to reinvent themselves in terms of getting rid of that relationship if the man's refusing to change. And then that's full, filled with a whole host of other stuff. Oh, like, you know, how course. do I support myself financially? Where do I live? I don't have any friends because this takes more from me. I'm alone. I'm isolated. I've got yes. kids. There's yeah. lots of stuff that happens for women around that as well, and they need to be supported for that. But on the other hand, you know, men need to be supported. Men often complain. I had someone complain to me the other day that there's no... Uh, if, if he breaks up from his relationship where he thinks he's being abused, he's doing the abusing, but... Um, that and she's she fights back, right? But you know, where so are she fights back and he feels abused, yeah, yeah, even though the police have been called on him many, many times. So, uh, why so he he thinks, well, why isn't there a service available for us? Me and she gets to go and have a you know, live in a hotel and whatever while she's escaping this violence, you know, well, where's that thing for me, you know, whatever. Well, you know, man, um. The reality aren't most is of the services men, for men. <laughs> well, well, I've, I say to people, look, I think that women, as a result of the feminist movement, in fact, have been very good at looking for services for them. You know, there there isn't a men's shelter for men who are escaping domestic violence. Maybe there should be. Maybe more men should stand up if they believe that they're the ones being abused. Maybe they should they should make that stand. You know, and then but men don't. You know, women are very good, I think, at advocating for themselves at many, many levels. Um, but men don't do that because if they do that, they're giving up their power. Giving up their power and seeing perhaps as uh, being seen as weak. Weak, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is a, not a go. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know we are weak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. oh, it is very interesting, isn't it? It's interesting to you obviously look at that at that micro level. Uh, and then what we see exhibited, I guess, at that conversational level that we've seen this week is all of that happening at that macro level as well, that those ideas about the way that women should behave and be treated and, and who are they between? deference, deference well, they are, to people Yeah, and those ideas power. are about, you know, how Grace was treated. Yes. You know, and in compared to... You know, Morrison, who has all the power and everything. So Who re is famous for refusing to take responsibility. Absolutely, absolutely. So you kind of, I kind of wonder, well, <coughs> in Morrison's life, you know, and, and he and Jen, uh, you know, who has the power in that relationship and how is that expressed? You know, and there's a lot of biblical shit happening around that because of his faith. And, you know, whether he uses the Bible to justify his behaviour in, in that relationship, I don't know. Sad thing, he's got two daughters. And I just wonder, you know, how are these kids going to grow up <coughs> observing a father who probably is quite authoritative and how are they going to acquiesce to men later on in life? So there's a whole host of issues happening. Projection. 
a whole mm. host of issues happening in his life that probably tend to get projected as well. Mm, interesting. So, so well, there that we was go. A I heavy, wasn't expecting to go down the track that was of a heavy projection. Is that a Freudian concept? Um, might be Rogerian, actually. Okay. I think. But there's someone here that might be able to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> what about transfer? Transference. Oh, trans- uh, transference is. That's Freudian. That's Freudian. And what does that mean? Well, it might be projectionist as well. So it's when I transfer my version of events onto you and you accept them. So um, I could have a relationship. So I could be talking about violence and abuse, I guess. And then um, I could be expressing that. So if in a counselling session you become controlling, right, telling people what to do, um, and you're working with someone who's dealing with controlling and that sort of behaviour, then you're transferring your stuff back to them or them to you. So it goes both ways. That's counter-transference when it goes the other way. Okay. Yeah. So there we go. Clearly I didn't do psych. Actually, I did do psych for a little while, a thousand years ago at university, but there were too many rats and too many stats and I wasn't good at either of them. No, I didn't do psych. I remember going into tutorials late for the rats so that my partners had already set things up and I didn't have to do very much and stats, I just failed. Well, there you go. And I didn't do so. Well, and I you, did did, do, you did some I did psych. two years of psych, psych yeah, actually, yeah, as it yeah. turned out. But um, never learned anything, obviously. I have to tell you, though, there's a crime show with young Freud as the character. So oh, I really? don't think it's based on any... It's fictional. But he's using his skills, psychoanalytic skills, to solve... So like Sherlock Holmes? Like a Sherlock Holmes, yes. All right, okay. <coughs> well, no doubt at one point they'll be making a session, a serious Tony Tonkin, the social worker. <laughs> <laughs> but we might hear about transference and projection on that show. We might, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you, Dee. Thanks, Tony. For being with us today. and Thanks for smiling. And I, I do my best, even though no one can see whether I am or not. <laughs> but, but we'll you take your word it. on it. But you can hear you it. Can hear it. Yeah, yeah, the tone of voice. Um... And uh, if you'd like to follow us, please do so. Uh, We'll love to have you with us and stay tuned for the next time that we're having conversations over coffee with Dee and Tony. Take care, everybody, and be safe.